Hello, hello, and welcome to a new episode of It Happened Here by myself, Kate Thompson-Davey, if you're new here. This is an independent podcast, which is a fancy way of saying it's really just me producing this thing. Despite that, I did hit a very cool milestone, I guess, this last week, and I wanted to start with that information. I know we don't like tons of ramble right up front and people just want me to get into the stories, but this one I wanted to acknowledge, and that is that we have just hit 40,000 downloads of It Happened Here, and that's in considerably less than a year. What is it, nine months, eight months now? So thank you so much for those of you Well, for anyone listening, I guess, you're part of that 40,000 downloads. I'm kind of overwhelmed. There must be particular thanks, though, to the Patreon crowd. It's a small but growing group of people who have volunteered to support this podcast in monetary terms. So, of course, I'm thankful for all support. If you listen, if you like, if you review, if you share the podcast, if you follow us on social... All of that supports my ability to get the podcast out there. And eventually, long-term thinking way down the line, maybe turn this into my primary output as a freelancer. But the patrons have dug into their wallets, and I'm always thrilled and excited and humbled by the fact that people have said, yes, I want to support this little independent project directly. So I want to give thanks to the latest people who've signed up to do that. I'm about a month behind on the thanks. But Cindy Morick, Caroline Barr, Julia, and Lynn Buck, thank you so much for going to patreon.com and pledging your monthly amounts. Every single bit helps. And since we're talking about supporting the project and allowing me to spend more and more time on it, I wanted to talk a little bit and quickly about advertising. I've not done any so far, but the requests are starting to come in now. And I wanted to let you know before I start saying yes to them, that I will always be upfront with you about anything that I'm advertising. So if I tell you about a product I've seen or a book that I've read, and I don't say this is an advert, then that's just something I've come across. So, for example, I've mentioned several books and several other podcasts along the way, and none of those are paid opportunities. I will be completely upfront when a paid opportunity comes my way. Anyway, that's all theoretical for now. I don't have any advertising in the bag. I just wanted to put that kind of in front of you. The impetus, well, not the impetus, but one of the founding values for this podcast was always about producing ethical true crime. And that's about how I tell the stories and where I put the emphasis and that we center victims. But it's also going to have to play into how I choose to monetize this podcast going forward. I think that's it for admin. So sorry for keeping you from your stories. Thank you for listening to me ramble on about my admin first thing. Thanks to the patrons. And now on with the story. This episode is quite a different one for me and a fascinating one. And it's nice to be able to to tell a story without a trigger warning up front. 
This one started with a text from a friend. That's Tandi, who I've mentioned before and who has helped me with researching uh, some of the patron episodes that I've put out, the patron exclusives. So I got this text from Tandi one day that just said, how do you feel about an art heist involving an Ermistern that won't fit in the boot, a Kabecha cemetery, and a missing Sakota? And of course, how could you not be in based on that start? So today we're going to zoom in on the Pretoria Art Museum. It's a Sunday, the 11th of November 2012, when three people stroll into the Pretoria Art Museum on Vessel Street in Arcadia, which is sort of a little bit east of downtown Pretoria. It's near Loftus and the Union Buildings. And honestly, Arcadia is a bit of a crappy part of the city. It's not an area I would choose to wander around on my own. But it's an historic part of the city. And this isn't just any gallery. Rather, it's a museum built and run by the city municipality to house a collection of art that technically belongs to the city. It was constructed in the 60s by the then apartheid government and some friends of the arts type funders in what the internet tells me is a modernist style. To my Philistine's eye, it is a low, squat building of concrete and glass that, together with a sculpture garden, takes up about a block of city real estate. It's been upgraded a few times since construction, but as far as I can see, the last major upgrade to the air conditioning, lighting, and critically security systems, was made in about 1999. The gallery then and today is open from Tuesdays to Sundays and charges a small entrance fee. That fee is about 25 rand an adult, less for students and pensioners, and in 2012, when our story takes place, it was just 20 rand that guests had to hand over in order to stroll the halls and Peer at some of the country's most historic, beautiful, and valuable artworks. On that Sunday, these three particular visitors did just that. They paid and they entered. It was an older man, roughly in his 50s, and two younger men, probably in their 20s. Once they'd made their way inside, the older man asked to see the museum's creator. He was, he said, a professor of art, and his companions were students of his. They had a list of very specific artworks that they wanted to see. All of them would be considered masterpieces. So far, so normal, right? Especially for a professor and his students. And the museum was virtually empty. There weren't many guests, and there were just three security guards. So the list was pointed out to them, But that's when the guns appeared. At gunpoint, the museum staff were ordered to lie on the floor while the three men posing as academics grabbed six paintings right off the walls, snatching up the paintings from the literal who's who of South African art. In addition to being an architectural philistine, I'm also an art one. But even I know the names of the artists that they targeted that day. 
Irma Stern, Jared Sakota, Maggie Lobster, Pianif, and Nordea. With the guards still cowering on the ground under the threat of being shot, the trio simply walked out of the museum, six artworks in hand, and they made their way to a getaway car that had been parked outside, a silver Toyota Avante. Now, I don't want to ever praise criminals, but up until this point, it had been a pretty impressive heist. No one had been physically harmed, and the perpetrators walked in and out. But that's when the thieves' luck ran out. Sort of. They loaded the paintings into the car, but one of the two stern paintings was too big to fit. I had looked up Toyota Avantes because I'm not a car person as well as not an architectural person or an art person. Clearly, there's lots about the world that I don't understand. But I was quite surprised by the choice of car here. Or maybe they didn't have a choice. Maybe that's the only car that they could get at short notice. But the Avante is a stock standard passenger car. So fitting a giant painting as some of Irma Stones are, especially when they're framed, it was always going to be quite difficult, let's call it that. The painting that wouldn't fit was entitled Two Malay Musicians, as I said, by Irma Stone. It's worth $1.5 million, or it was in 2012, it's probably more since then, and it was the most valuable of the works taken that day. Instead of faffing with it or trying to make a different plan, they chose a clean getaway. And this painting, this $1.5 million painting by Irma Stone, was left on the side of the road in Scaffy, Arcadia, when they drove away. And it was sitting there when the security arrived shortly after. Still, it was a good haul that they managed to get away with. The five stolen artworks that they drove away with were Fishing Boats by Irma Stone, Street Scene by Jared Sakota, Cat and Petunias by Maggie Loebscher, Irland and Bird by J.H. Pianif, and the rather unfortunately named Hottentot Chief by Hugo Nordea. The value of the stolen paintings was put at around 15 to 17 million rand. News of the heist broke pretty quickly, both here in South Africa and abroad. In fact, it was a major story. I saw coverage in the BBC and the LA Times, among other international titles. It was declared pretty quickly by the South African police force, the work of an organized crime syndicate. And almost as quickly, we would learn that there was no video footage of the event, despite the fact that the museum was fitted with cameras. And when I say fitted, I mean really fitted. One intrepid journalist from Eyewitness News was standing outside the museum by Monday morning, counting cameras that he could see just the ones roof mounted on the museum and he counted at least a dozen but apparently the cctv system was just coincidentally not working that day in fact the cameras had not been working since the thursday before the incident 
which I think we can all agree is a pretty suspicious fact. And of course, that was jumped all over by critics and the press who said that the security presence, aka the number of guards, and the security systems were insufficient. And clearly they were, because three men walked out with six valuable South African paintings. The other thing that immediately comes to mind when you hear that the cameras were not working is that this is probably an inside job. But we didn't have terribly long to ponder that possible explanation because the next twist in the story arrived very quickly to steal the headlines. And that is that by Tuesday, so just a day and a bit later, four of the paintings were accounted for and found in the oddest of places. They had been taken out of their frames and stashed under a bench in a cemetery next to a Dutch Reformed church in then Port Elizabeth, now Tabecha. If you're not certain of the geography, that's 1,100 kilometers or 680 miles away from where they were stolen. As someone who pretty regularly drives cross-country, my first thought is that is a 12-hour drive. So either these paintings were calmly walked onto a plane in the intervening days or driven through half the country. And if I was investigating this, that would be a thread I'd want to pull at. I've read two different explanations for how the stash of stolen artwork were reportedly discovered. The first explanation is that they were just merely chanced upon by a regular Joe going for a walk. And the second is that there was a tip-off to the police to check that site, a tip-off that had come from an insider to the crime. Again, the coverage from Eyewitness News, who were all over the story, and the links are in my show notes, that coverage suggests that it was the latter, an insider tip, and that the bench was probably intended as a drop-off point for the next person in the chain to collect the four artworks. And there's another reason why I think that that is a solid theory. The paintings were reportedly found at 1.30am on a Tuesday morning, which seems to me like a pretty odd time for Joe Public to be strolling through a cemetery. If you're keeping the numbers in mind, you'll have spotted something here. The thieves walked out of the museum with six paintings. They left one on the sidewalk and got away with five of them, and now four have been discovered in that cemetery. So what has happened to the missing painting? Street Scene by Gerard Sakota has been described as an iconic painting worth some seven million rand. And it is still missing today. We've been offered no explanation as to why this one was kept and the others were either discarded or left under that bench. Well, I say no explanation, but that's not true. We have no confirmed explanation. What we do have is a couple of news suggestions. So the Pretoria News reported that they had a source telling them that the theft had been commissioned 
by a, quote, prominent artist. And a spokesperson for Crimeline has been quoted in several different publications claiming that they had been told it was an art dealer who commissioned the theft. With that painting still being missing, we are kind of left to speculate. Why would it be taken? And where is it now? Because the thing is, once a famous piece of art like that is stolen, it can't really be sold on the open market again. Everyone knows that it's been stolen. So if you show up at an auction house saying, hey, I have Street Scene by Sakota in my bag. Do you want to sell it for me? There's going to be a lot of questions to be answered. And when I realized that, I actually started thinking, what is the value of stolen art? Of course here, I am talking about monetary value. I'm not best placed to say whether a painting on your wall has artistic or sentimental value. That's not what I'm talking about. But if it's stolen and it can't go back onto the legitimate market, how does stolen art retain its value? I took that question to some experts at Stefan Waltz, a well-established and known auction house in South Africa. And this is what they had to say. For the record, can I ask you to introduce yourself with your job title? I am, my name is Leona and I am the marketing manager for Stefan Valsen Co. And I'm Alexia and I'm a fine arts specialist in the Joburg office at Stefan Valsen Co. So when it comes to valuing art, there's quite a, there's quite a lot that we have to take into take into account the first thing is you know the creative ability the skill and dedication of the artist and then as well as the as the uniqueness of of the work so i mean if you go to like a commercial gallery some of it's like run off the mill and then it's also got to do with the artist's exposure in the primary market so you're looking at at galleries so the auction houses function in the secondary market so when it comes to us handling artworks we have to see what sort of presence the artist has in the in the primary market is he or she known or is it an up-and-coming art then it also has to do with the development of the artist's style to boost the artwork's investment value so so with some artists their early works are very much sought after some artists their later career works are more valuable um, and then some artists have been really lucky. There's a high demand for everything. And the perfect case in point would be PNF. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't go wrong with a, with a good old PNF. And then the next thing is also the authenticity of the work. There, there's definitely a group of people that are um, replicating our, our African artists. So our Gerard, some, some Gerard Sakotos, our George Pembers, uh, Lucas Atole. With that, um, the reason why they easily faked is because there's not a lot of literature or historical context. Mm. And some of the fakes are glaringly obvious. What, so what so, are the kind of red flags for, a, for an obvious fake? So one we came up with recently was a, was a Maggie Lopesha. 
and the palette was wrong, the technique was wrong, um, and it's just your your eye gets trained to it. So there's obviously key things you you look out for, but as you deal with more and more authentic Maggie Lopes, for instance, you can tell a fake. And what's great is there's a there's a huge catalog that we that we have that we can con- that we can consult and it lists the, the artwork, the catalog number, and then also the provenance. So if there are any discrepancies, then we know that there's a bit of a there's a bit of a problem here. Um, all right. So that that brings us now to the question of art fraud, I guess, and art theft. Um, so I understand why there is value in being able to pass off a fake as a real and getting it into the system. But what I don't understand is what is the value of something that is authentic and stolen and now being stored somewhere? Well, if their artwork gets stolen, I mean, they can they can register it. And we, by we, I mean all the auction houses and anyone in the art industry, we get a notification saying um, these artworks have been stolen from this collection or from said person. If anyone does, say, for instance, upload it on eBay or Bid or Buy or First Dibs or even on an auction house, whoever owns it will get a notification saying that this work is been on, been, is being offered. It's resurfaced. It just doesn't make sense because you can't, you can't sell it openly. If you have stolen an artwork, you cannot sell it openly. The only way you can, you can sell it is on the dark web or the, you know, the black, the yes. black market. And in that case, it's going to depreciate in, in value because you're going to have to sell it in a, in a sneaky way. And then whoever buys it is going to be told you're shopping on the black market. I mean, it's illegal in any case. Yes. So they're going to know that they, it's not like they can, now approach Stefan Waltz or any other you know, any other establishments and say, I have this painting on offer because we're already gonna be like, well, this is stolen and we have to notify the yeah, we have to notify the police as well as whoever it belongs to. I mean, you have to wait for a whole generation or two of people to this sounds very dark, but to die before you can even think of selling it again. Yeah, think of selling it again. But even then, the art registry still exists. It goes back years, so it'll you'll still get caught. So it's unless the person that has stolen it is has stolen it to keep it for their own their own gain or to make money on the black market. But even then, it's not going to compare to what you can get at an auction house because they can hack the prices. And say, well, this is a one of a kind, whatever. Um, but whoever buys it is going to know that they're not going to be able to do anything with it other than sell it through the exact same channel that they got it from. The full discussion between myself and the experts at Stefan Veltz is loaded as an extra for patrons on that platform. But I wanted to thank them in particular for making time and answering questions from a total art noob like myself. This really is a fascinating case to me, and I know I've used that word before, and I'm sorry, but I find crime fascinating. And this one was a bloodless crime, we think. There's always the question of what further actions down the line in the value chain of organized crime this money might support or allow. Wow, I phrased that very badly, but I'm sure you get what I mean. In a, in essence, the primary crime that we're talking about here was a 
bloodless crime. They walked in, they walked out, and it was concluded unbelievably fast as well, if you exclude the fact that there's still a painting out there. Just a day later, we knew about it. Half a day after that, the paintings are recovered. And a week later, the museum is reopened with those incredibly valuable South African paintings back on the walls where they belong, minus that Sakota. And I've never seen any explanation for that. It's like the story went dead. The spokesperson for um, the mayor of Pretoria slash Twane promised, for example, that there would be an investigation into what happened with the cameras. How is it that the cameras were turned off at just the right weekend, essentially? And who's to blame for that? We don't know. We're not given an explanation. For whatever reason, the news around this case dries up in 2012. Every further mention that I can find thereafter is in a sort of roundup article, you know, five big heists that you should know about. Whoever commissioned this crime, assuming it was commissioned in the first place by some nefarious individual, they're either sitting with a Sokota on their wall that they can never really show anyone or sell. I don't have any further information to give you about who commissioned this crime or why it went so wrong. But I do have a theory about maybe what happened to that Sakota. And to be totally clear, this is just speculation. I don't have anything to back this up. But I have wondered, I guess, Occam's razor application, etc., etc., whether the Sakota is actually missing or was potentially destroyed. The reason I say that is because the recovered works were removed from their frame, and I can imagine a situation in which the pressurized art thieves who have just crossed the country for a drop-off of these valuable artworks are trying to get that out of its frame and damage it in some fundamental way. These aren't exactly careful art historians here handling these works. I just wonder what's more likely that four were earmarked for the next person in the chain, but one kept back, or all five were supposed to go to their destination, but one was damaged, and essentially the deal fell through because there was no pickup, because the cops got to the site before whoever next in the chain was. And I wonder about the insider who was calling the tip line. You know, if a priceless piece of South African art heritage had been damaged, did they have a moment of guilt? Thinking, what have we done? Maybe that's what drove them to call the cops? Or maybe they realized when they weren't going to deliver the full contingent of the original six, that probably the deal wasn't going to work. And so they abandoned the whole thought of it. I don't have any answers to that, I'm afraid. These are just the questions that keep me up at night because apparently this is who I am now. But there you have it. That is the case of the Ermistone that wouldn't fit in the boot and the missing Sokota, which maybe is out there somewhere. I'd love to hear your theories as wildly speculative as my own on what you think went down in this case. Please let me know on social. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram. 
And I am technically on Twitter, but I don't uh, tweet all that often. But you can look for uh, Ready Freddy Productions on Twitter or It Happened Here on Facebook and Instagram. It Happened Here is a Ready Freddy production, written, researched, produced, etc., etc., by me, Kate Thompson-Davey. Mm-hmm.